Richard Holloway until the year 2000 was Episcopal Bishop of Edinburgh. Richard came from a working-class background in Alexandria near Glasgow, and he tells Michael Barclay about the different influences on his life and faith. Today he talks about the problems of organised religion and the difficulties of clergy admitting their doubts. I wonder whether the next music, which is Jacqueline Dupre playing Elgar's cello concerto, in some way takes you to the tragedy and the glory of human life. I'm sure you know what I mean. I do, absolutely, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't do jaunty music. I'm kind of deeply in touch with um, what um, I call the tears at the heart of things, um, uh, the, this notion that there is something fundamentally sad and ultimately uh, losing in the human condition, and yet out of it has come great art and great music. Um, and Elgar's cello concerto, which, of course, was... Um, he composed it during the summer of 1919, and the summer before in Sussex, he'd heard the guns in Europe across the Channel. I mean, it, it was his response to the astonishing madness of human nature. We go warring with each other. I mean, I'm 88 now, and I don't think I've lived at a time when there hasn't been a war. We haven't been fighting somewhere. And the cello concerto just captures the deep sadness at the heart of human history, that we we can't somehow learn just to love one another. We're constantly fighting and challenging and strangling one another. And the cello concerto just captures that for me. It brings the sorrow of human history into this music, and I... I, I kind of cry just listening to it, yet somehow transmutes into a kind of strange, passionate, sad glory. I can't find any other words for it. Let's just listen. <laughs> There is just something about music that allows us to bleed all our sorrows into it and find a strange kind of temporary healing uh, that lifts you above them. Jacqueline Dupre was playing music from the first movement of the Elgar Cello Concerto, John Barbarolli conducting the London Symphony Orchestra in that famous 1965 recording. And, by the way, you can find details of all the music chosen today by my guest, Richard Holloway, if you visit the Private Passions webpage. If you'd like to find hundreds of previous editions of the programme, they're there on BBC Sounds to download and enjoy at your leisure. Richard, when you were appointed Bishop of Edinburgh in 1986, you had already developed a strong dislike of what you describe as religious overconfidence. What did you mean by that? I think um, 
the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. Faith and doubt are coactive. Um, they're in harmony with each other. And the people that end up running religions hate that because it lacks the kind of dogmatic fixed certainty that gives them power to run the lives of people and its um, institutions. And what happens when a great religious idea, a theme like grace or forgiveness or ecstasy, is given an institutional form, the people who run it are usually the people least able to understand the mystery of the original gift, and they turn it into an institution. It seems to me that in my experience of a long, long time in the church, I began to see that if you hold religious dogmas too strongly, they make you cruel. They say that gay people cannot have sexual relationships. They say that women cannot be ordained. Um, and a big turning point for me happened in 1998. I went to a, a bishop's conference in Canterbury, and I was hoping that we would start nudging ourselves towards a more open way of understanding uh, gay sexuality. And it turned into a kind of Nuremberg rally of bishops. It became a hate fest. And, and it kind of, it killed something in me. I just, I, I couldn't be bothered any longer wanting to be associated with an institution that put its own integrity before human good. And institutions do that. So if you're running one, be very careful because it might have killed your spirit. Do you think that many clergy perhaps go through their lives afraid to voice their doubts about their faith? Oh, I think that's undoubtedly true because they might get sacked by the management of local churches. I mean, we have a deep need for religion in the sense that we're puzzled by our own existence. Where did we come from? Where are we going? What does it all mean? Yes, and you also love walking, poetry. You're uncomfortable, really, with the rules of institutions, so I can't help wondering, in a sense, if you're not a bit of a romantic rebel. I think there's probably something in that, and you, you, it takes you a long time to get to know who you are. We're thrown into existence. We didn't choose our parents, our social background. And um, uh, one of the things about a long life is you kind of get to know yourself uh, uh, over the years. Well, if there is a romantic element to your rebelliousness, Richard, we can certainly find it in the work of our next composer, Rachmaninoff. Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah. This particular piece I've, I've chosen, Rhapsody on a Theme by Paganini. By the way, Paganini means little pagan, um, but he was a, a kind of genius, uh, and Rachmaninoff picked this up this extraordinary theme, and I, I hope you're going to give us the achingness of it. And it's just, again, one of those things that lifts you out of words into a kind of an aching silence, um, because it too speaks of the longing for meaning and transcendence, but doesn't deliver it. So it's a kind of aching piece of music.
Music from the Rhapsody on a Theme by Paganini, by Rachmaninoff. We heard the London Symphony Orchestra with the soloist Tamash Vashari and the conductor Yuri Aronovich. The Reverend Dr Philip Noble has many interests which you can see on his website, bubblestrings.com. In the series we have on Heart and Soul, he's talking about different aspects of Jesus' ministry. Today, he examines the value of making eye contact. In America, a few years ago, a reporter decided he would like to interview a First Nation chief. Well, it was a hard job to find one who had agreed to do it. But finally, one of the chiefs did agree. But there was a condition, and that was that there should be a pre-meeting first. The reporter wasn't too worried about this because he assumed it would simply be to look at the scope of the interview, maybe the nature of the questions, or even to examine the equipment. However, this wasn't the case at all. When he arrived for the interview, the chief brought him into a room and sat him down, and then drew up a chair opposite him and looked straight into his face. The interviewer was a bit disconcerted and looked away, but when he looked back, there was the chief sitting there staring straight into his face. So eventually he managed to make eye contact and held it for a bit, but it was too hard and away he looked again. Chief continued to look straight into his face. After about five minutes, the reporter held contact and continued to hold it. And this went on for almost half an hour. At the end of that time, the chief said, ready? It's time for the interview. Well, when the reporter started to ask his questions, there weren't at all the questions he had written down beforehand. In fact, he was later to say that he felt that the questions were deeper than he'd ever gone before, and perhaps they revealed just as much about him as they did about the first Indian chief. The chief was paying close attention closer attention than the reporter had ever had before to him. And Jesus has the same kind of way. He is so interested in people and he notices them, even at a distance. In chapter one of John's Gospel, we hear of Nathanael seated under a fig tree. And Jesus says of him, at a distance, look, over there is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Now, let me say a little word about fig trees. First of all, in the Bible, they are very blessed places. They have a tremendous span. They're almost as wide as they are tall, and they have thick green leaves. So they're great for giving shade. And also, in due season, they give beautiful fruit. In fact, it's said that when Israelites are fully at peace, each one of them will have their own fig tree to sit underneath. Well, when Nathaniel meets Jesus, he says, how did you know me? And a deep conversation continues. There are many other cases in scripture when Jesus has the same noticing of people. One, for example, when Zacchaeus is up this tree to see Jesus because he says he's too short, he can't see him. And Jesus looks up. I'm certain Zacchaeus wasn't the only man up a tree. But he is the one that Jesus noticed and said, 
it's chaos come down today I want to eat in your house salvation has come to your house today and then there's that amazing moment at the trial of Jesus when he's been held prisoner and he turns round and the scripture simply says that he looked at Peter and in that direct look so much was said so much more than any words could be spoken one of my sons uh, makes videos he was asked to do one for homeless people to try and show their plight. Well, he designed a virtual reality video which someone could wear on their head and look at images of people who were on the street, maybe poor people. But as soon as the eyes were turned towards them, this virtual reality, the eyes of the person who was considered poor would look away. As soon as the person looked away again, the eyes would return. It was impossible to make contact because they felt so bad about themselves. So today, why not take time to try and notice people around about you? Make a little bit of eye contact and be grateful if you manage to get something more than a mere exchange of glances and maybe a smile will follow. Try it and see. Ian Myerskoff is a member of Pitlochry Baptist Church. This week, he talks about the experience of one of his clients at a drug rehabilitation centre. This is a second talk about life and faith in troubled times, maybe even like ours today. It's of two different men, very different, who both shared in the history of my piano stool. I talked last time about the original owner of my piano stool, how the shaking of life's circumstances, rather than crushing him, helped him back to a secure place of faith in God. That was my grandfather, whose faith I share, though we never met. I also mentioned the second person, whose life is evoked by that piano stool, because he reupholstered it as an act of kindness while recovering at the drug rehab where I was a volunteer builder. That was 25 years ago. I don't know if you're still with us, Callum. Life passes quickly for opioid addicts. But I know he wouldn't mind me repeating this story. We were a church-based centre, and residents chose us for whatever reason. For many or most, it was Hobson's choice. We looked like a soft touch instead of prison. I didn't know Callum's background. He was a private person, toughened like most by his experiences. Most addicts of his age had hit rock bottom several times and lost everything. He spoke quickly with an Irish brogue, so I had to say pardon more than I wanted to. We used to meet on a Monday afternoon as staff and residents, maybe 40 people, in the oak-panelled library. That Monday, he suddenly spoke up in an agitated and shocked voice. I'm seeing a vision right now. Instant silence in the room. This was real. Prison cool left. There's a golden bridge in front of me, leading to a shining city. It's thronged with worshipping people and 
joy. I can't describe it, but it, it's so vivid it's like I was there. And then curving from the right there's a wide dark river which is flowing under that bridge and away to my left and it's full of people too but they're fighting and cursing and shouting especially at the people on the bridge an evidently shocked Callum stopped and looked round the silent room <laughs> nothing more was said we closed the meeting but the conversations that followed were many. I'm sure God showed him that picture as a graphic kindness. I know you, Callum. I want to welcome you to where I am. Just come. I don't even know which group of people he felt part of, but I know he wanted to be a worshipper on the Golden Bridge leading to the shining city. And I guess what counts with God is today's desire and choice. Not how far we think we've come. That repentant thief on the cross, beside Jesus, he didn't have a high score, but his recognition of the blameless Lord in the man next to him was enough for Jesus. Today you will be with me in paradise. We don't all get visions, but God talks to us all. Maybe if we're so deeply scarred by life like Callum, he has to break through our distorted worldview so we can see clearly. Many men at the rehab were like that, victims of total loss and life pain, damaged, des desperate enough even to come to a Christian outfit. If life is shaking you today, you can be sure God is talking to you. Love best describes him, and love never fails, never gives up. But you have to receive love. Like John says in his gospel introduction, to everyone who received Jesus, who believed in him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They were born from God. God bless you. Matthew Roger is a retired minister living in Ailith. Matthew is the local minister at Pilocrae Church of Scotland. Every Sunday he has some first thoughts to illustrate the point of his sermon. This week we hear about Captain Cook in New Zealand. And I remembered as I was thinking about New Zealand that the first Britain, one of the first Britons to visit that country was Captain James Cook. And those of you who remember anything that you ever learned about James Cook will know that when he was on his discovery journeys, he was very good at giving names to different places. Very strange names, lovely names. For example, the Bay of Plenty. 
doubtful sound, pleasant point. And I think my favorite, Hen and Chicken Islands. Who ever heard of a Scottish location being given a name like, like that? But there was one bay that Cook didn't reach, and he gave it a name. He called it the bay that nobody knows of. Strange name. Twenty years after Cook came Captain Vancouver, who's had a city named after him, and he reached the bay called Nobody Knows What, and he renamed it. He renamed it Somebody Knows What. Uh, and there was nothing in brackets which suggested that that somebody was a lady. You heard the session clerk this morning report that there had been some deaths in Pitlochry. And we know that the death of a person who is loved can cause a great hurt and a great pain. But we have to remember that before Jesus, nobody, nobody knew what happened after death. People were fearful about what might happen to them. We know that Jesus went through death. And we know that the Jesus who died on the cross and was buried rose again from the dead. And so because of Jesus, we know what? Because Jesus has shown us what? God loves us. And God would give to us the gift of life here on earth. And he would offer us the opportunity to enjoy life eternal. Nothing can separate us from our God who has shown us him in Jesus Christ our Lord. So these are my first thoughts. Don't be afraid. Jesus is alive in all the power of God's Spirit to be a strength for us, to be someone who will aid us through life into his kingdom of heaven.
Jesus covers all, it covers all. 